ain't that the funkiest music this side of, well, the Black Stump, I guess, here on Fuzzy Logic, and we're dancing around the studio, and we are looking forward to uh, uh, the March for Science. We are hoping to undo some of the damage that is being inflicted on science around the world in politics and by various vested interest groups. That's the 14th of March here in Canberra and around the nation and I think around the world. And so today uh, with Andrew Leach. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Rod. Uh, we are going to celebrate some of the great things that science does all the wonderful achievements of science and we're going to talk about our breakfast in a moment yes breakfast <laughs> i still haven't had mine yet i should I, sh I should be more of an adult and eat breakfast in the morning and, and be better at that but i often skip it well to it, get an extra half hour of sleep <laughs> <laughs> well it's one of those things that are un undervalued and why science is so important but let's kick off with some non-science andy all right now here's a question for you what star sign are you uh May, uh, Taurus. Taurus. I'm you not are much Taurus. of an okay. astrology person. I'm going to read for you the uh, you, the, uh, the astrology, right? Oh, okay. But I'm going to read one which may or may not be Taurus. <laughs> and your question is, which one uh, does this uh, describe you or, yeah. or not? Okay, so here, I'm going to pick one at random. Okay, here we go. This week's... Full Blue Moon highlights romance, entertainment, networking, friendships, creative endeavours and group projects. So just about everything. Uh, <laughs> with your sparky uh, mojo and momentum running at high speed, you will be ready to rock and roll. But Saturn and retrograde Mercury caution you to slow down. Again, that's very You general. should also... Uh, take your foot off uh, out of your mouth and communicate with the most care and consideration, especially in matters involving relationships and money. So your question, is that for us or is that another one? That's everybody. Uh, that's just the general advice that you can do for any anybody. Uh, it's it's one of those things that I guess with a lot of astrology and and and, and most of those kind of faux pseudo intellectual things is it's basically cold reading you say something general enough that people go oh yeah that does pertain to me but it pertains to everybody and therefore it pertains to nobody it's not useful for anybody it's like hey be careful you can have a good time but you know think about what you're doing that's all that said that's that's all it wasn't that's great advice for everybody but everyone does it already uh, and I, I, I think I um, I know what you're saying there Andy and the answer would be that uh, you could be you have a 50% chance of being correct and in fact the star uh, sign that I've just read for there is Sagittarius which is me and I so relate to everything <laughs> I so relate to everything that happened uh, there now speaking of uh, science and non-science and uh, in the Canberra Times and online in Fairfax we have our Ask Fuzzy column and today is one squarely in the theme of uh, what is real science and what might not be. Yeah, so this is one looking at one of those those household pseudosciences that you might never really think about. You've probably seen ads for. It's um, about ultrasonic insect pest control. So the question was, do ultrasonic insect pest control devices work? And you might have seen an ad for them where you plug it into your wall and it emits a frequency that's just, just it's, it's horrible for insects and they'll just run away and it'll, it'll hurt them. Some say, oh, it, it, it's the same frequency as a dragonfly so it keeps mosquitoes away 
Now, that doesn't really make sense, and a lot of people's BS monitors are going, yeah, that, that can't really work. And the, the first thing is because insects don't really hear the way that we do. The, most people, the, uh, animals hear by having small hairs that vibrate, and they can kind of get that. It's, it's some sort of kinetic reception. But insects do it from different parts of the body. They don't have like two things on the side of their head to, to use it for mostly communication and knowing the world around them. They still feel the vibrations in the air, but it's not the same. I think, we uh, now we did one on spiders a while back, and I think spiders have the, used the hairs on their legs as the sound sensors. Yeah. So insects, it depends on the insects as to where the hairs are, but the mostly hairs vibrating is how you pick up sound. Little things vibrating, and that's how you pick up sound. We have them in our ears. The, the little hairs in our ears vibrating, we get sounds that way. But insects don't get annoyed by these sounds, and there's no like instinctual response to run away from these sounds. If they can hear them, why would they get annoyed by them, and do they have the capacity yeah, to be like, annoyed by something? It's not like they're hearing a political speech from their least favourite politician or something like that, yeah. or, or some music that they really dislike. I think it's a classic case, isn't it, of us projecting onto another species the, the way that we would think in, in a similar situation. Now, now, there are ultrasonic pest controls, but they were first designed by people who own shops and they didn't want people in hoodies hanging around outside. So young people, they put up these these sounds that would drive drive young people away because only they could hear it, but older elderly people who they wanted in the shops couldn't hear them, so they just wandered on in fine. They don't really work for insects. <laughs> so if you see one saying, oh, I've got this insect pest control thing, no, it's, it's not really doing anything. And the one that said that I mentioned before about dragonfly wings, you can hear dragonfly wings. They they they're a fine. They're not like ultrasonic at all. They're, they're sonic. We can hear them. That's that's not anything that's annoying to us, and it's not annoying to mosquitoes or anything like that either. These do not work. Well, now, now ultimately though, the, the the scientific method is what really matters here, isn't it? Because we can have this conversation about the logic of it. And I agree entirely with what you're saying, Andy. But the real test is put them in a lab and see what happens. Does it work? Because evidence could take you in either direction. You're absolutely right. So Martin Robertson from the Australian Museum did do some tests and he said, yeah, they, they, um, they, they don't work at all. Actually, they had cockroaches just that laid eggs inside the actual devices. So these things do not work at all. They do not dissuade any insect from your house. There are great old things that you can use to kind of dissuade insects. Um, and mostly these are... These are mosquito-repelling products like DEET or IR3535, which are chemicals that really do dispel mosquitoes, and they work really well. Um, you can just rub them on your skin. That's probably the best thing to do. Um, but those sound things aren't going to work that yeah. well. Now, that article focuses on insects, and it has a lovely picture of a cockroach, <laughs> he says, honestly. Yeah. Now, uh, but the one that I wanted uh, confirmation of was uh, kangaroos. Now, people put those kangaroo whistles on their bull bars with, with the notion that a kangaroo is going to hear uh, oh, this whistle off in the distance. They go, oh, that's an approaching four-wheel drive. Better go off the road and, <laughs> and hide. And now, I can speak to this personally. So when I bought my car used, yes, the, the fuzzy logic money is not making me very rich. I buy used cars. Uh, it came with those 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 roo shoes is what the, the owner called them, roo shoes, and they were little whistles that apparently scare the roos away. Um, I've hit a kangaroo in this car. It with didn't, those, yeah, with, with the those. roo shoes on. They didn't really work that well. Um, and it's the same kind of principle. 
these are put into manufacturing and they're marketed as a way, oh, yeah, they, they work because they dispel things. So that now sounds dispel us for multiple different reasons, but they might not work the same on animals and they haven't necessarily been tested. <laughs> I'll tell you, I've got to put this in the same category as a bunch of other things, which are really no more than amulets. Exactly. Really yeah. amulets. And that would be, do you remember where people used to put the, uh, the plastic bottles of water on their front lawn? I've not heard of this, but keep going. Well, it, it seems to have gone away now, but people would put a plastic water bottle on their front lawn to keep the dogs off because the dogs wouldn't go and urinate or crap on their grass <laughs> if there was one of these water bottles. I kid you not, that's what they would do. Now, the other one, which is still very common, is uh, on the bicycle helmets. Yes, the, the cable tyres. The cable tyres. And somebody at the CSIRO for a bit of a, uh, a non-scientific study put up a YouTube <laughs> video. Have you seen it? Andy? No, I haven't seen this one. Oh, it's worth it's worth looking at. Well, maybe we'll put a link on our uh, Twitter account. And uh, anyway, the the video shows uh, different combinations of bicycle plus rider with helmet, without helmet, <laughs> with tags, without tags. And the, so the guy first rides a normal helmet and the magpie was pretty stroppy <laughs> uh, yeah it goes for him big time hits the, hits the guy uh, the guy's helmet okay so now he put the cable ties on same result and then he took the helmet off and he just running this is through yep. a car park right up at the Black Mountain yep. site and uh, the magpie completely ignored him so every time I see somebody riding past on their bicycles with cable tyres, I think mm, plastic water bottles, uh, rouge shoes and uh, mosquito repellents. Yeah, it's all part of that little pseudoscience solutions to things that well, don't really make too much sense. All right, but today, so that's a bit of non-science and today we are celebrating science. We're going to break to a track and when we come back, some marine science and some deep dark secrets from my friend here in the studio, Andy Leach on the Fuzzy Logic. Uh, the Immigrant Song, some classic uh, Led Zeppelin here on Fuzzy Logic and we're going to go to the Antarctic later in the show under the cover of the ice and snow, very appropriate and uh, of course around the ocean and in today's Canberra Times we have another story and this one was about Nemo. Now, of course, the great story Finding Nemo, which is a pretty good movie. I did enjoy that. I've enjoyed it so much as a kid that probably had too much of an effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, now, Nemo isn't quite a mobile a fish, as you might think from watching the movie. And what's the story, Andy? That's right. So um, a lot of people think that after seeing the movie that a, that a clownfish could probably travel the whole east coast of Australia. And the answer to that is probably not. Um, clownfish and a lot of um, reef fish are not very good long-distance swimmers. They kind of stay around these little reefs and, and, and structures and, and reefs just to, for protection. They don't really swim too far. And this is causing a, this is a problem of late because of we've had successively with coral bleaching that fish like clownfish and reef gobies are losing their habitats. So a lot of people know from the movies that clownfish live in anemones. And these anemones have like stinging tentacles that protect them. But they also do get bleached. Now, I'll quickly explain what bleaching is. So, uh, reefs and corals are made, corals have polyps, and inside of the coral structure are uh, symbiotic algae. So, this is an algae that 
like photosynthesizers for them. It's called zooxanthellae, and they live in the tissue of the uh, the corals, and they give them sugar. Um, and th- so it's kind of like a symbiotic relationship where the corals protect the algae, and the algae produces food for them. When it gets too hot these algae no longer produce sugars. It's just too hot for them. So the coral says, well, you're not doing anything for me. Rack off. And <laughs> just pushes them out. Now, these algae give all the corals their colour. So when the, uh, um, when the corals no longer have the algae inside them, they don't have any colour, so they look white, and we call that coral bleaching. Now, corals can recover. Sometimes they'll get the algae to come back if it cools down enough, but sometimes they don't, and the corals end up just dying. Sorry, the, the polyps themselves die, yeah, and, yeah, the, and the polyps can only survive for so long without, without, their, without their, their friends, the zooxanthellae. So they'll just end up dying, and then you have these massive areas of coral reef that have died, and anemones are the same. They, they can bleach and they can die, and now if if they die and they're no longer protecting the clownfish or the little gobies that are in the reef, then they're really subject to predators. And really what we're seeing here is a case of environmental collapse in a local region. Yeah, so researchers around Lizard Island were decided to kind of look at the different reef fish and, and their abundance after these reef uh, these bleaching events. So they had information on how abundant they were before the bleaching events and they were looking to see what it was like afterwards. They found that the numbers just plummeted. It was really quite ugly and that's because these fish no longer had protection. They couldn't, they're not very good swimmers so they don't swim to another new area. They just they're they're not really Nemo in that sense. No, um, they're they're kind of stuck. So then they're We need now to repopulate so if the reef is going to recover uh, we've got to rebuild. Now I'll just quickly interject here uh, Andy because I think our listener needs to know that you actually have a, a background in marine science and we'll come back to the the coral story in a moment but just just quickly tell me what your, your background is. So I studied marine science at university and then I worked a bit in environmental consulting and then I spent a bit of time in conservation work. So I, work, I, I worked on a conservation project in the Seychelles, identifying reef species and basically diving two or three times a day counting oh, fish. Oh, that's awful. It was, oh, it was, it was so, so much of a struggle. And then after that, I worked in turtle conservation and, and, and things like that and um, spent a lot of time on beaches in Western Australia counting and playing with turtles. Oh, I can just hear the great size of despair as all our <laughs> listeners uh, uh, over the terrible experiences that, you, that you've had. Yeah, so I've, I've got a bit of a bit of marine science passion as well and I've spent a bit of time mo- in fisheries monitoring as well, counting lots of different fish. Um, so that's kind of my CV. That's why I'm, I'm able to talk about this. Well, there you bit. go. See, we, we, we have some expertise here in the studio on fuzzy logic. Now, Andy, if we're going to find ourselves a, a bleached reef and we're going to try and recover it. So now there's some sort of intervention that we can we can do and there are things that can be done to help restore the health of a reef. What what sort of things would they be? Um, first and foremost you, you try and want to cut out the bleaching so maybe we stop polluting so much carbon but that might not be the best thing. So there's funding for the moment, exploratory funding around Australia for reef seeding. So this might be just flooding the area that has been bleached with, with new polyps that they've been raised in captivity or they have little bits of coral that they replant that is alive that can hopefully grow and, and repopulate the area. Yep. Because when corals collapse, often it means that there's a shift in the ecosystem and algae takes over. So you'll see these whole, what used to be beautiful coloured coral with lots of different fish species and it's really diverse. And I guess the science here will tell us whether the polyps can re. Uh, colonized theory that's now been taken over by the algae. Yeah. 
Um, I, I don't. It's often very hard because Alg is a very good competitor. Um, if if you have that phase shift, I'm not sure if they can go back. And I'm sure a scientist might call up and tell us. But it's a bit um, like the squatters have moved into your house. E- exactly. Yeah. And these algae don't really provide as much protection for invertebrates or smaller fish, and they don't provide as much habitat structure as well. So it often leads to a, a massive collapse and just green yuck algae with what used to be a beautifully coloured species rich coral reef so it can mean quite bad things but scientists are working on ways to kind of rehabilitate reefs um, there's lots of different ways that and coral seeding or polyps and things like that, that I was talking about earlier and hopefully we can get these reefs and also down. I presume the clownfish and the other fish species that, that would be there maybe I guess there's also a sequence that this has to be done in like you can't just go there and dump all this stuff on the reef you need to very plan the progression of how the the, the reef is going to recover yeah and so scientists are working on ways to determine a good like best practices to, to recover reefs and and um, other scientists are working on finding climate change hardy um, species of coral that can exist in these higher temperatures and maybe um, get through more bleaching events so we still have it might be a different type of coral reef with different numbers of coral species but they're going to be more hardy and able to adapt to climate change a little bit this is a really good example though isn't of of a systems at work Uh, now a system is a bunch of whole very many different parts all interacting in, in a very complicated way and if you want to say make a system that is uh, chaotic or extremely difficult to understand in, in the whole sense, you only need three or four elements that are, that are interacting, and the, the the emergent properties of that system become very hard to to comprehend. Yeah, so the sum of the parts become the the, the whole system becomes greater than the sum of its parts. So it, if you want to kind of translate this to something every day, think of a car. Now a car's main function is to move something from A and B. Now, no one part of a car can do that. They all have to work together, and that's the same as an ecosystem. You you take out one thing, and that might still be able to function okay, but you take out too much of a, a part of an ecosystem, so something that may, performs a major function, you can completely and sometimes irreparably change the ecosystem and, and to recreate what was there it can be it can, it can be impossible yeah. in some stages can't so it? what you'll yeah. have is yeah. something that might be good but it's not going to be the same now let's let's take the system up to a larger scale right so we've got the marine reef and there okay so there's a few yuppie skin diving tourists who go pay big money and they're not going to go there anymore and uh, but the impacts of the reef well you know oh, well uh, that's just one reef but it's part of a fishery system, and the fisheries are things are produce things that we eat, the, the crayfish and the fish and so on. And then there's the chemistry of the ocean. I, I don't know. I can only speculate on what that might be. And there's just all these knock-on effects we just don't really fully understand. So we're we're messing with this car. We we just oh we just pull this bolt out here. Oh that we have the bolts not doing anything oops that bolt is holding the brake calipers together yeah uh yeah so it's it's the idea that you keep changing something is it going to be the same or when does it collapse it's like a giant jenga tower now it's all useful but if you keep pulling things out and changing things when does it all fall over and we have seen areas of complete ecosystem collapse in the past in uh, West Africa where there was a massive fisheries during the 80s that was the Anchoveta industry was completely fished out and there was a lot of Soviet fisheries and things like that completely fished out so all of a sudden you had this middle kind of of the food 
food web just completely taken away. So it used to eat all the algae and then bigger fish used to eat those. All of a sudden these algae just bloomed and just absolutely went crazy. And so you had giant jellyfish explosions. And when these algae bloom so much, they create an anoxic environment. There's no more oxygen in the water, so it just kills everything else. And then the algae eventually dies and settles. Oh, we get the so-called dead zones. Yeah, and then if the algae settles and then it goes under the sea, it'll produce a lot of methane. So then when there's a disturbance, there's all this methane in the seafloor. That bubbles up and kills everything again. So you get this cycle of horrible, horrible things. So when you have an ecosystem collapse, it can take a very long time or it may never fully recover. So, Well, here we are today on Fuzzy Logic celebrating science and it is a pretty bleak story but uh, the, the March for Science is coming up on the 14th of April and we're going to point and we have details of that on our Fuzzy Logic sites. But let's talk about how the science really matters here because we wouldn't understand any of this if it wasn't for the science. Yeah, so it's uh, there's lots of different science working, but the basic science um, that is done is, is, is researchers kind of asking questions and then figuring it out. And the system of science is something that we like to celebrate here at Fuzzy Logic, and we really like the idea of a March for Science where the whole community can come along and celebrate the system that is science. It's, it's a nice process. It's kind of probably the best invention that humans have had, the whole process of science, and it, it integrates into our everyday lives. Um, well, you, you could take someone who's just like an algae researcher and they're in the lab and, you know, they're looking at how the photosynthesis works in some chemical pathway and it's really micro detail. And, and you might say, oh, I'm a funding, oh, you know, I don't care about the chemistry pathway and that uh, algae. But when you put that person's story or that algal story together with the polyp story, with the coral story, with the fish and with the fisheries and with the people and our food and what we had for breakfast, and I'm getting excited here because this is really important. And the March for Science is so important because science is under attack and from so many quarters We've got political movements who think that it's all about ideology and uh, I'm having a rant. <laughs> I'm having a rant. Do you think that means we should cut to a song, uh, Andy? I think it might be time for a song. <laughs> yeah, it might be time for a song. Okay, here's something a little cheerful, but also to do with water on Fuzzy Logic. I'll sing you a ditty, a sweet little song. Just take a minute, it won't keep you long I'll sing of the days when our love was so new And we sailed down the Murray River, boys In a gum tree canoe We rode, we rode, all the waters so blue Like a feather we would float along in a gum tree canoe My hand on the banjo The toe on the oar We'd work all the day And we'd sing as we go But at night time I'd turn To my Julia so true And we sail down the Murray River, boys In a gum tree canoe We rode we rode all the waters so blue like a feather we would float along in a country canoe 
wind we rode, all the waters so blue. Like a feather we would float along in a country canoe. I once left the river to go on the land set myself up as a cocky so grand but the life didn't suit me it made my heart sore i went back to the murray river boys and the junior ones we rode we rode all the waters so blue like a feather we would float along in a gum tree canoe. Well, not marine science, but uh, a river in that particular song. Uh, that's called. Uh, actually, not sure what it's called. We sailed up a, up the Murray River in a, you know, I would say a concrete canoe, but it's really a gum tree canoe. Well, I bought that that uh, album years ago on vinyl from a busker down in Woden, and he was sitting there with his dog playing the banjo, and it's got some really nice music, really beautiful stuff on it too play that occasionally well here on Fuzzy Logic with me Rod and Andy Leach and Andy has a background in marine science and we are talking turtles. Yes we're going to talk about some turtles. Turtles now uh, we all love turtles and we were talking about uh, Finding Nemo and of course the turtle stars in that uh, grab shells dude or, uh, which, is, which is pretty cool but uh, did you know that uh, Australia is the nesting site for, I think it's either five or six significant uh, species of marine turtle? So there's a little bit of a contention with this. Uh, Australian waters have five of the six um, species. So I can, I can, do you want me to rattle them off? Uh, we have the green sea turtle. We have the olive ridley sea turtle. We have the hawksbill sea turtle, the loggerhead sea turtle, um, and the leatherback. That's if I count that correctly. The one we don't have is the Kemp's Ridley sea turtle, which I think is around the... Uh, are these turtles, uh, they're all the Pacific region, I presume, and are there other species in other oceans, like the Atlantic or so on? Yeah, so the Kemp's Ridley is the one that I think, I'm, I'm not completely sure of its, its location, but from what I understand, I think it's around the Caribbean, Central America area, where you can only really find that these days. All those other species that I just listed are kind of international, so they will, um, they will travel vast distances and um, they, are, they are feed for people in uh, various islands of course to the north yeah you've got to be careful as to if you if you eat turtle some some people do eat, eat turtles um the, the name green sea turtle comes because people used to eat them because when you boil a green sea turtle's flesh it turns nice and green because their diet is mostly seagrass and people can eat those um sailors used to catch them and put them in the holes of their ships because they could survive a long time without you having to feed them and then you could quickly eat them when you needed to. 
um, and that's how they get the name Green Sea Turtle. It's oh. quite morbid. <laughs> just, just, just a quick uh, uh, historic aside here. Now, when uh, Captain Cook and his crew were sailing up the uh, east coast of Australia, which they did not discover, of course, it was well known <laughs> to, the, to the people that were here, uh, but he was up near Cooktown, I think it was, and they hit the reef. And this is pretty amazing. Imagine being on that ship, the Bark Endeavour, and you're in the middle of the ocean and the nearest other person or other ship of any sort is thousands of miles away. So they dragged their ship up onto the beach and, of course, there were the local Aborigines. They were already there. Thanks very much. And things got a bit touchy between the uh, the, the white guys and the Aborigines because the, the, uh, the cook's crew started catching turtles and they dragged them up onto the beach and they trussed them up and I think... Now, the Aborigines started to release some of them, and then there was a bit of conflict, and I'm not sure the detail, but maybe a little bit of low-level violence going on, but very much part of the Aboriginal culture. Yeah, so Indigenous people um, are custodians of the land, they, they, they see themselves as such, and while some Indigenous people still have a right for subsistence fishing and will um, occasionally eat green sea turtles, it's in a very controlled way and the elders control when you can eat them and how you can eat them and, and there's a big process with them and of course when English white people come onto the land and not really understand that you have to kind of work with nature to kind of get the most out of it and just started pulling up too many the indigenous people very smartly um, saw it on themselves to free them and say you can't actually do this and the, the uncivilised white people said, we don't understand, we need food and trying to eat you, them all. You put that beautifully, Andy, <laughs> and uh, to, to me that really illustrates how the Aboriginal people, they survived on this continent for 65,000 years, or possibly even longer. Yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure, and I've read uh, Tim Flannery's book, The Future Eaters, recently, they caused real havoc when they got here, eating out the megafauna. I think there's a pretty strong case that they were... <laughs> Uh, heavily implicated in the disappearance of the megafauna, but over that very, like a 65,000, I cannot really comprehend the, the the scale of time. Like if you go to the Middle East, okay, and you go to the city of David, that's like 5,000 years old or maybe a bit more than that. That's nothing compared to 65,000 years. And so these people learnt to live within the environment. They learnt to live within their means and that's something we have not done. No, we decided to change the area around us to suit our needs, and it seems now that we've changed it a little bit too much and it's starting to affect things. Uh, but going back to turtles, um, you're heading up to Ket York soon, from what I understand, and you're looking to hopefully see some turtles up well, there? Well, that's right, because uh, there are conservation programs up in Cape York, yeah. and uh, the predation on the eggs... now. Pretty uh, tasty feed if you if you're an animal, you're a fox or a dog or a pig. Yes. Uh, and you want uh, some nice eggs, go and dig up the nest. Yeah. So this is something I have a bit of experience with. I, when I worked on a turtle conservation project in Western Australia, part of the big project was to kind of eradicate foxes around the nests because foxes we we found that 97% of nests that were laid on this beach were being predated by foxes. 97. It was absolutely crazy. So what 
they've, um, they cleverly did was create basically a buffer area of a, a few kilometres around the beach that no fox could really go onto. And pest management people were there all the time trying to track and bait foxes so they weren't going to predate on any of the nests. Um, there are natural predators to nests, crabs, goannas, and things like that, and that's at a level that's, that's okay. part of the normal scheme yeah. of things, right? But when you have foxes who are very clever, they'll see a turtle lay and just wait, and then just quickly dig it up when the turtle's gone, and will, they'll get quite big and fat off these things. So I had to learn to also track foxes to see if I ever saw a fox track to, to report that. Um, but you can bring the fox numbers down, but in certain parts where there's no eradication projects going on foxes can eat so much of the turtle turtle areas that a whole beach rookery population can um, if it's sustained for long enough it'll it'll collapse because there's no more turtles coming back to the beach to lay their eggs and yeah and then what a what a, a, a tragedy i mean we love turtles and of course there is a slight irony here in that we tend to want to save the animals that we like the look of so yeah. who wants to save an algae <laughs> Not many people, but a c turtle is cute, and uh, uh, there's big poetic things that you really beautiful. like to think. Well, let, let, let's celebrate a good story here, because there's the uh, Queensland uh, uh, Nest to Ocean project, and the Queensland government has contributed $7 million to this, and it's the sort of programs you're talking about, Andy, uh, saving their nests and so on. Yep. And just quickly before we break to another song track, you were telling me before the show that you can tell something about the type of turtle based on the tracks that they yeah, run up the so, beach. So you can identify a turtle by its tracks as it crawls up. So different turtle species will have different, I guess the word is gait, or different ways that they crawl along the beach. Um, you can you can think about it as like um, swimming strokes. So loggerhead turtles and hawksbill turtles have kind of like a freestyle approach. They have an alternating arm. They'll swim over the top, whereas green sea turtles kind of do a butterfly stroke where they go both at the same time ah. to go and go up. Oh, dear, dear, listen, thing. you should see Andy as uh, he's he's doing these swimming strokes in the studio. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's the way I used to explain it to kids and things like that. So you can kind of identify different turtles by their different tracks and the width of the track and different parts of it. You can soft, often see a tail drag and that'll tell you what type of turtle it is. Um, so a big part of the conservation work I would do would be walking along a beach uh, 14 kilometres every morning, counting the turtle tracks and identifying the turtles oh, and seeing if they cool. nest or not just by looking at the sand and you can learn so much from just now, looking I was, at part of it. I was on a beach up in the Dampier Archipelago many years ago and I found turtle tracks going up. I thought I'll just go and have a non-destructive, very careful look. And by the way, this is an island in the archipelago, yeah. so no, no, none of those uh, pest or uh, feral species, right? And I thought I'll just have a little look and see if I can dig up the eggs and and, and see. Oh dear, I'm getting a frown. Don't do that. No, leave leave it alone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's all right. Um, oh, I would I would have I just as soon as I would have found the eggs, yeah. I would have left them. Yeah. yeah. But they're very naughty. But anyway, I couldn't. I couldn't find them. Yeah. So often people think where they see a, a hole, and that's that's where the nest is. Um, turtles are very clever. They will disguise where the actual egg chamber is. So you have to kind of know how to look for them, and it's usually like a meter back from the main hole. So what a turtle does is when it comes up onto the beach, it crawls up, finds a nice area that they think they can lay their eggs. They'll start digging a hole with their their back. Their back, uh, their front and back flippers, um, and their back fins will slowly create a, like a nice little egg chamber about a meter down. 
they'll lay and deposit their eggs into there and then they'll start patting like a little kind of like a chamber around it not crushing the eggs and making it a bit protected and they'll build that up to the same height as the sand and then the turtle will start shuffling forward and throwing sand backwards everywhere they'll keep throwing sand and throwing sand and then they'll move forward a little about a meter further and they'll keep throwing sand and it creates a little hole there and then they'll make their way back. So that's called the body pit, that little hole there. Most people think that body pit, that's where the nest is. No, no, it's about a metre further up or a metre away. And you can kind of, a trained eye can actually see that mound and go, that's where the egg chamber is, not uh, where the body pit is. Cunning, cunning. So they, dis they disguise their nests, but foxes can usually smell them or, or get through them. Crabs can often get but into not, them. But not well. a dopey tourist. Yeah, dopey tourists who don't, <laughs> don't really know what they're doing often see them. Oh, well, there you go. Don't don't touch the uh, the turtle nests when you find them. If you do find them uh, here on Fuzzy Logic, we are celebrating science. And don't forget the March for Science coming up, 14th of April, Regatta Point. And I think it's 11 o'clock in the morning. We'll check. And... Uh, Anyway, let's break to another track, another feral animal here. See if you can guess which one it is on Fuzzy Logic. Buffalo Girls, of course, uh, and that is, in fact, a bit of banjo music, obviously, from the soundtrack to that movie, Deliverance. Do you remember that? Yes, of course you do, Andy. Uh, we're going to break to a, an interview now, and another good story, and this is Dr. Jenny Scott. Now, originally I interviewed Dr. Scott, oh, quite a few years ago, and it was just before they were about to start an eradication program of... Uh, rabbits and rats and I think there are also cats and there may have been goats on Macquarie Island. Now this is a follow-up that I uh, interviewed that I recorded sometime after and well here's Jenny Scott. Now last time we spoke I was asking you about the eradication of pests on the island. What are the pests? Oh, this is an amazing story. Some um, some listeners may well have heard about it in the last couple of years. Macquarie Island, like most of the subantarctic islands, it was oh in the 19th century. There are a lot of peop a lot of sealers there, sealing gangs, exploiting the fur seals and then the elephant seals and the penguins for oil. 
And this happened all the way around sub-Antarctic. And when the sealers came, they brought rabbits with them because rabbits are great, used to be great to sort of release on islands because they bred up quickly and you could eat them if you were shipwrecked. Um, so it was a policy all around the Australian coast, for example, to introduce rabbits every time you stopped somewhere. So they had rabbits in hutches. Because they breed really quickly and were really good to eat, uh, it was thought to be a good thing to have an insurance for future shipwrecks. That's like a lot of the uh, Australian uh, gold miners used to take with them um, blackberry seeds so they could have jam. <laughs> yes, precisely. Australia's got a really terrible history of that kind of thing. Acclimatisation, it was called. Okay, so we have this on lush vegetation, even if it's not that warm and friendly for humans. We've got rabbits. And what else have we have? Well, rabbits, rats. Um, and rats. Yes, now the rats, rats and the, the mice. Rats and, and mice. And did have cats, but cats have been eradicated now. No no goats? No goats. Uh, no, there were sort of odd things like horses down there for a month at a time and so on, sort of brought down by people. But the, the species, the pet species that really um, managed to survive there and thrive have been cats, rabbits, rats and mice. Now, the, the rats and mice were stowaways. They weren't deliberately put there. No, they, they just got there, yeah. Because I have heard that the Pacific Islanders deliberately took rats with them on their boats because actually they're quite tasty and they transport quite well as well. Oh, yes, the Kiori. Yes, yes, they're um, a different kettle of fish, I think, or kettle of rats. Okay, now, so... There was an eradication program for the cats, and the cats eat the rabbits and the rats and the mice, and then what happened? Well, it wasn't quite as simple as that. Everything sort of adapted to the environment there, and the cats ate rabbits. They also ate a lot of burrowing, tiny burrowing birds, burrowing petrels, and they caused devastation amongst these small birds. And Macquarie Island probably had, were just sort of swarming with these tiny birds originally, but there's very few left now. They're coming back now, but the main reason that the cats were eradicated was to try and restore the small burrowing bird populations, and that seems to be succeeding now. The rats also ate the burrowing birds. Mice change the vegetation and also affect the invertebrates, the insect life. Rabbits eat the vegetation. And so everything affects something else and affects each other as well. It's quite a complicated story, even though it's quite a simple island ecosystem. And so some people have said, well, you took the cats off, therefore there's lots more rabbits now. But it's not as simple as that. The rabbits, you know, there are always heaps of rabbits and heaps of cats, and it sort of varied according to the climate of the year. Sometimes rabbits didn't do so well if it was a really cold winter, etc. But what has happened in the last few years, since the cats were taken off the island, the burrowing birds have started to come back, and that's a fantastic success story. But in the meantime, the rabbits were used to be controlled by myxomatosis, which is a really nasty disease, rabbit disease. It's been used on the mainland of Australia for a long time. But it's no longer used on in the Australian mainland, and it's no longer made, so myxomatosis couldn't be used on to control rabbits anymore on Macquarie Island. So the rabbits started expanding, partly because there were no cats to eat them and partly because there was no more myxomatosis to control them with and partly because there's something in the climate that's changed in terms of slightly milder winters. No one can quite pick that. It's quite a complicated story that researchers are working on at the moment. Not quite as simple as saying, oh, it's global climate change. It's quite a complicated story. But anyway, whatever happened, the rabbits started to really expand. 
and now there's an enormous number of rabbits. Since about 2000, they've really, really expanded and they're causing an enormous amount of problems with the vegetation and the land slipping. The island looks like a degraded mess at the moment. Yes, I've seen the photos of the island. It is uh, steep, hilly slopes with this thick vegetation, but in places the, the vegetation has been stripped off by the rabbits and uh, has resulted in uh, the landslips and the degradation and damage to the nesting areas for the birds. Yes, it's a really horrible sight. And there you go, that was Dr Jenny Scott, who I was interviewing back in 2015. Now, getting that program going was quite a, a feat because they had to convince the, uh, the government, the state government and the federal government to spend money, helicopter drops of baits and so on, and there were the dogs... Have you, heard yeah. about, have you heard about the dogs, Andy? Dogs used to help hunt the, the rabbits and things like that. Yeah. yeah, and they had to train the dogs. It was really hard work. They had to train the dogs to not eat, don't eat that bird dog, mm. eat the rabbit. The story of Macquarie Island is, is quite sad. So there were massive, massive fur seal, and elephant seal and, and penguin populations. And at the time, around the world, we had this massive call out for oils. And so when... They needed oil for the lamps and streetlights and things like that. This was just before electricity. So a great way to get oils was from whales and it was also from seals and penguins that had blubber. So people set up these massive industrial complexes to kind of kill seals, take their oil, and then they transport it around the world. So eventually they got through all the fur seals, so they moved on to the elephant seals. Then after a while they got onto they ran out of things and then they saw that there were all these penguins so they just started rounding up penguins and pushing them into these giant vats and obviously the populations of all of them just collapsed and like said in the interview they introduced species to be able to eat so they ate rabbits and cats got on board because they were on ships and rats the same so the complete ecosystem of the area changed and it collapsed and then can change something new it's, it's talking about it goes back to what we were talking about before little each animal has a kind of little niche that it kind of operates in and it does a ver few very small things but adding all those together creates an amazing ecosystem you and take those out and, and Jenny put it very nicely in that interview then she said everything is connected to something else and that's why of course we use the term web yes because you, you can visualize this this intricate yeah connect connectivity of things yeah, a few small things doing a few, th uh, lots of little things doing one or two major actions. Together it creates this amazing web of, of ecosystem and then when you take a lot of away it just collapses. So we saw that cats were affecting the birds and the local flying, flying bird populations. The, the penguins are slowly coming back but not that much because they're nowhere near the numbers that they used to be. Um, so the birds are, were being really, really predated on by the cats so they got rid of the cats and then obviously other things exploded as a, not just as a result of the cats, there are a few other things going on there. Um, so now we kind of need to work on all the other pests as well. And that's a, a thing that often pest management in the past has not been done well, taking all the pests into account at once. Rather, they say, okay, well, this is too much. We need to cull just this one thing. The whole system is set up at the way that they will just come back. So you have to approach it all at once. Uh, yeah, there was another example of that, I believe, with the release accidental of the Khaleesi virus, that the wedge-tailed eagles would eat the rabbits, and then when the rabbit population suddenly declined, then they went looking for other lunches. And, and foxes as well, when, yeah, foxes. When, when foxes used to eat the rabbits, and then all of a sudden there was less rabbits, so the pressure on the, the local native species was Now, was all, all of these things add up to the thing we call the Anthropocene. I know that's a, maybe seem like a, a long 
bow, but the Anthropocene thesis, or which which I think is pretty much proven, and it's, it's on the verge of being endorsed by the Geographic or Geological Society, but uh, it says that humans are now so intrusive in the environment that everything we do affects, we, we are a fundamental part of the environment. So the idea of a national park, for example, or, or Macquarie Island or uh, the Cape York Peninsula or wherever, if we simply withdraw from that, then or, or the coral reef, if we simply withdraw from that, then we are just, with goodness knows what will happen to it. So we're now in the state where we have to, and I'm doing the finger-waving thing, that manage our environment. Yeah, it may not ever be what it used to be, but it can still be good, I think is the, the, the idea what it was. I don't think we're ever going to get certain environments back to what they were. No They've way. They've been irreparably changed, but maybe we can have something where we still have a nice carrying capacity of all the different species we still have. That seems to be the, the goalposts have shifted on conservation. Let's have a go at the a definition of the word good there. Yeah. And I think you, you, you implied it. One would be diversity, richness of the, of the life. Mm. Another one would be the productivity from the human point of view. Yeah, uh, productivity for humans, but also productivity for these 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 ecosystems. So whilst we still manage them, we, productivity has a lot of different words in biology. It could just be how much animals or, or, or organic matter a whole system is producing, and that's also the productivity. So how much things are photosynthesizing and, and how useful that is, and it's, it's a good proxy for how many species are there. Um, I guess I also always got in the back of my mind and this goes back to the attack on science, the, the economic the economic boosting people or the, the notion that money is what matters most. And so when, I'm, when I say economics, I'm talking about human consumption. Uh, we, we, you know, we have to feed ourselves about profit and loss and all of those things. And what I'm saying is that good... If you don't give us stuff about the, the coral reef, you don't care about some little island in the sub-Antarctic, at least you should care about whether you ate breakfast or not. Yeah, um, and, and a lot of people, like I said before, these a lot of these little things do one or two functions that work really well, but they add to the sum of they add to create something that's the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You keep taking out these little things, eventually the whole thing falls apart. So. The line is always to protect everything that we have as much as we possibly can yeah, because yep. we want to keep it functioning. Right, now let's, let's talk about the role of science here. We've got a few, couple of minutes left, but uh, where, where science is and, and the strands of science. So you've got the, the role of each of the parts of an ecosystem, right? But let's talk about the science ecosystem and what sciences are involved. Now, I've been distributing a little poster through our Twitter account, which is what I had for breakfast and you can apply this to the scenarios we've been talking about today and so in the poster I've created a, there's a, a bowl of cereal yeah. now to get that bowl of cereal onto my breakfast table required a, a farmer yeah. and plant species and those plant species have been se selected through genetics and we've got pests that eat those plants uh, so we've got the chemicals and the pesticides We've got the fertilisers, and we've got the taxonomists, those unsung heroes. <laughs> 
that are often ignored. Yeah, I think a lot of people, if you want to think about how individual scientists work, you can think of the sum of all scientific knowledge as a big circle. If you, you look at the circle and you think, that's great, that's all we have, a lot of people will try and learn as much of that as possible. But what the experts do is they operate on the fringe of that circle. They try and push that circle just a little bit bigger to make maybe a little blip in a circle to make it the overall circle just a little bit bigger. We have lots of scientists working in different areas trying to push that circle to be greater. The sum of all our scientific knowledge just to try and be a little bit greater. And if you have that greater knowledge, then the people who learn a lot of it or most of it can then maybe apply things to make life a little bit easier for us all. So always scientists are always trying to make that circle just a little bit bigger. Well, and this is an urgent, urgent task. I'm saying that with yeah. big words because the uh, humanity faces such vast problems that uh, we, we don't we cannot afford to be ignorant we cannot afford now we are kicked off the show with a bit of light-hearted humor poking fun at astrology and uh, and also we talked about insect pest controls with the 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 ultrasonic devices and so on but science is, is the only tool that we have to really validate what we know it's not a faith it's a way of putting up an idea, mercilessly attacking it, and get until we have a pretty good idea that we think it's, it's pretty close. Science is just controlled doubt. You, you have an idea and then you doubt it so much and you think you, you approach everything as though I'm an idiot and then you try and disprove yourself because you assume that you're an idiot and if you can't disprove yourself so many times you think maybe I'm onto something here. That's kind of how science works. It's just a process. It's not, it's not an ideology. It's not a faith-based system. It's just a process of attacking a problem. And yep. often we don't use that process enough in everyday life when we have a s political situation that's trying to ignore it. Exactly. So I think come you, along 14th of April. 14th yeah. of April, March for Science. Fuzzy Logic will be there in, in force uh, <laughs> singing. And uh, when you look at your breakfast tomorrow morning, uh, just think about how you can thank a scientist and uh, good on you scientists we love you all here on Fuzzy Logic and of course we are pretty much biased I have to say but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah and taking ego out of it alright well I think speaking of ego time to say goodbye to a couple of egos goodbye all uh, good on you Andy and great to have you on the show plenty more coming up gotta go catch you later